Cool. Psalm chapter 63, and uh, when you arrive there, stand for the reading of the word. You want to preach? Huh? Interrupt me anytime. All right, again, if you would stand for the reading of the word, if you're able. going to read verse one, but we're going to look at the whole chapter this evening. Verse one says, O God, you are my God, and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. I pray that it would run swiftly, that it would be glorified in all of us, just as it has done in me and it has done in several of us in this room, we just pray that it continue to be glorified, that your word would lift up the testimony of Jesus. We want the spirit of prophecy with us this evening. We wanna know what Jesus sees, what he feels, the word that he's spoken, what he's gonna do about the things that he sees and feels. And we just thank you for even a Holy Spirit, your role of convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment, coming and comforting, coming and teaching, showing us the deep things of God. So ask that you would prepare my heart and my mind to be able to understand and comprehend, to hear you speaking, and that you would just use me tonight. I pray for my friends that are here this evening and watching online, that your hand would be upon their heart and their mind so that they could hear understand and feel the emotional content of the information that's being spoken, the word that's being spoken. So we just thank you for the beauty of your word, the rhema and the logos working together for understanding and healing. We love you, we bless you, amen and amen. You may be seated. All right, Um, I'm gonna spend all night in Psalm chapter 63, uh, but if you're one that conflates the, or I should say, if you're one that does not see the new covenant in the Old Testament, this might not make so much sense of why I'm using this passage. Um, But if you've been in this house, we understand that the gospel was preached to Abraham, that the law preaches the gospel, it says in Hebrews, that children of Israel had the gospel preached to them and the eternity of the cross opened up a way for the eternal Melchizedek priesthood to be accessed at any point on our timeline. And so we're gonna look at some of the grace and the mercy. We're gonna look at some of uh, how the Lord responds to sin and the human effects of these things. I'm not in the holiness series that I've been preaching the last three or four times I've been up. Um, I've actually just been singing Psalm 63. Oh no, there go the announcements. I've been singing Psalm 63 in the prayer room and it's just moved my heart and with the desire and the cry of many of us for just deeper times in the Lord together. And I gotta emphasize the together part because there's nothing like the corporate celebration of all of us coming together with one voice and one heart to bring our flames together to burn. Because I'm introverted, so I naturally like being by myself it is easier for me to just get on my couch alone and put on some chill music, open up my Bible, and touch the presence of God 
every single time without fail. But there's something different and special about the presence of the Lord when we gather together because I can, as an individual, tap into some of the beautiful realities of what it means to be the bride of Christ, to be intimate with the Lord, to know him and be intimate with his word. I can tap into some of those realities, but scripture is clear that I am not the fullness of what it means to be the bride of Christ without you. And so even as my introverted tendencies, like, drag me away from people. I've had to be disciplined to like love the congregation of the godly ones, to understand like we are Christ's body together. And so that means many things. That means being his hand and his feet as we minister to the lost. But that also means being a kingdom of priests that can come together to celebrate God and burn him incense. So when we gather together, we've just been desiring deeper places of God together. And I've been singing Psalm 63 during my times to lead in the prayer room. And it's just been striking a chord with me. And I'm just like, I got to put the holiness series on hold for a little bit. And uh, I felt like this was appropriate because it really just goes along with the cry that is in so many of our hearts, Psalm 63. Um, But this has historically been one of my favorite psalms. One of the first songs I wrote, or actually the first song I wrote, was from verse eight, where it says, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. I love that verse because it seems to answer that tension of, well, is it all grace and I don't have to do any works and God does it all, or do I have some responsibility? And this is one of those places that just beautifully answers that tension is your responsibility. You cling to God. As it says in Jude, you keep yourself in love. How? By praying always in the Holy Spirit. You keep yourself in love. You cling to God and then trust that his right hand will uphold you. And so it's grace in our works for the sake of love working together. And so I I love this psalm. I love this psalm and it's just struck me, struck me new. And uh, again, I just invite you even to see new covenant realities in this passage because the new covenant is from Genesis to Revelation. It's not exclusive to the New Testament. Um, Now, I have kind of a caveat before I I get into this. What I'm gonna do tonight before I preach through Psalm 63 is I really wanna couch it in the historical context because it's a beautiful psalm on itself or by itself, but the historical context with which this was written and sung is astonishing. It's astonishing, and it just it it's encouraging as, as much as it is astonishing. But uh, my desire is to again set context, and because I don't have a lot of time, I have to do it in a certain way. And my heart is not to dishonor David, because um, I'm going to highlight his sin. And this is what I mean. And those of you who have been in the house for a while, you probably know where I'm going. But the modern Western church seems to make too much of the sin of righteous men's lives in order to comfort people and compromise with exaggerated and false views of grace. Uh, But remember that grace is not a cover-up, it's not an overlooking, but it's a power that comes in you as you walk by the Spirit to literally say no to sin in your flesh and walk holy even in your flesh and your body. Grace is a power, as it says in Titus 2. 
Like it comes and brings you salvation, but that is the entry point to the kingdom. Then you can continue reading on in Titus 2, and it says it teaches you to deny ungodliness and live soberly and righteously in this present age, and then fix your hope on his coming again. And why is that important? Because 3 John 3 says when you fix your hope on his coming, it actually begins to purify you in the same way that he's pure. And so that's what we think of grace. And so as I look at David's sin, I don't, again, want to be swept up in what, how our modern culture treats righteous men. Sometimes I feel like they just even make up stuff to just degrade the character of righteous men. Did you know that there's men in the Bible that did not sin in the flesh? Samuel comes to mind. Job, it says, even though he said some silly things, it said he did not sin in anything he said. Uh, Daniel's another one who does not have any sin listed. And again, I come back to Samuel. God actually thundered from heaven to confirm Samuel's words when he stood before the nation, said, which one of you can accuse me of any sin? And the Lord thundered to confirm his words. And so sometimes I feel like we put so much, we make so much of the sin of righteous men so that we can feel comfortable in our compromise when we should be looking at their example, like Enoch, who lived holy and pleased God in the Old Testament scriptures. We should be encouraged by those examples to practically overcome and not just have our sin overlooked. So as I, we look at David's sin, I think it's really important to note that David's sin was a one-time event. It was devastating, and so I don't wanna take that away, and we're gonna look at how devastating it was in a moment, but it was a devastating sin, but it was a one-time event. It was not his lifestyle. So when you read the letter of 1 John, he who practices sin is of the devil. He does not know God and he's a liar. 1 John's really plain, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father who's faithful and just. So the difference is if you stumble and repent and get up, there's grace. If you live in a lifestyle of compromise, there is not grace for that. And if you practice that as a lifestyle, it is a good thing to come away from that. But I wanna point out, again, David, it, this was not a lifestyle. It was a one-time event. And at the end of David's life, God said of David, this is a man that did all of my will. I mean, think of the mercy, the tender mercies of God and the grace. Even this devastating one act that we're gonna look at, and we probably already know what it is, the adultery and the murder. Um, even that one act, as devastating as that was, God still looks over David's life at the end of it all because he finished faithful. He looks at David and said, there's a man that did all my will. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus, the son of God, is not ashamed to be called David's son. The New Testament is bookended with Jesus, the son of David. In Matthew, before you get into the begots, Jesus, the son of David, the seed and the root of Jesse. At the very end of Revelation, he was not ashamed to be called David's son. And David was a man that did all of his will. So again, that being said, my intention with setting context is not to come in the same spirit that so many modern preachers do, um, but to demonstrate the human consequences of sin when it's unleashed. And that's a really important, the human consequences 
of sin when it's unleashed. Because although there is forgiveness through Jesus, the human consequences will bear out so that the name of God is not blasphemed. For example, a person who commits a crime can find grace in Jesus and still get to heaven, but at the same time spend years or even their whole life in prison. Uh, Like we hear a common testimony of the murderer who found new life in Christ, fell in love with Jesus, and has completely become a new man, can still face capital punishment. But the beauty of that capital punishment is it's just gonna get him to the face of his lover sooner as they're filled with joy and hope and faith, even in prison and facing the death penalty. So we're gonna look at grace and also just the human consequences once you open that door because beloved, you are the gatekeeper. God gave man dominion in the garden. So if you open the door and light comes through, then light will begin to sow seeds and bear fruit. If you open the door to darkness and sin, sin will begin to sow seeds and bear fruit in your life. And so facing the human consequences of the sin, this is where I wanna pick up with David. And I would encourage you to even just read more detail so that this psalm can be couched in a greater context and you can see the full scope of the story behind this. But I wanna start in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after the adultery and after the murder. Because I'm assuming most of us are familiar with that. If you're not, you can read before that. But uh, King David commits adultery and then murder. And then David is in the final day or days of peace after committing adultery with the woman, murdering her husband after they found out she was pregnant. And David being a man after God's own heart who knew the presence of the Holy Spirit before, at this point, before he repents, had to have felt miserable felt miserable through the conviction and the feeling of losing that divine life on the body. You can literally feel divine life on your body. And it's not just a sovereignty of God as we so often claim the sovereignty of God. Like you can step into divine life. You can step into the presence of God whenever you want. And it's as simple as living clean before him and turning your conscience and your thoughts towards him. And so David, a man after God's own heart, after he does this, he's gotta feel miserable at that point because Isaiah says once you sin, like the communion with the Lord stops. And so he's gotta feel miserable at this point because he's grown up as a boy in the fields getting used to that presence being a normal part of life. Running from Saul and that presence is a normal part of his life coming up into the kingship and the honor and dignity that that brought in the eyes of the nation, but still having the presence of God upon his life, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, putting it in a tent and surrounding it with 24-7 prophecy, prayer, and worship, used to the presence of the Lord. And then at this moment, like you gotta see just such a miserable miserable man who does not have access to divine life. And this point is so critical because this has crushed many other kings in the past. This has crushed so many people where you sear your conscience 
to the point of not returning to the Lord, your heart begins to harden. And there were so many kings in the Old Testament even that started good and started faithful, had one transgression, not even as deep as David's transgression, but they never turned back to the Lord in humility. They stiffened their neck and in pride they kept walking and that was the ruin of them even though they started good. There's a really important scripture In the Old Testament, it's repeated twice. One of the prophets says it to one of the kings who started good. And uh, it was even David's instructions to his son Solomon when he says, because most of us are familiar with the New Testament quoting of it, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. Well, there's more to that quote. And David says to Solomon, and this prophet says to King Azza, the Lord is with you when you're with him. But if you forsake him, he'll reject you forever. And so you've seen these kings harden their heart and forsake the Lord. So David is at this critical point of either hardening his heart or forsaking the Lord. But I believe one of the reasons that brought him back to the Lord when he was confronted with the word of the prophet, when he said, you're the man, and calls him out for the murder and the adultery, that David had such a rich history with the Lord that his heart actually ached to get back what he had. But he's in this short limbo period of suppressing conviction while trying to carry on as usual. And then Nathan just interrupts that process. Because, and, and I love Nathan coming because You know, most of us think of Old Testament prophets as just like waggy finger cranky guys, and they're not. They're just, they carried the heart of the Lord. They understood the law and they, they understood how the Lord worked. And so they knew that there was always opportunity for repentance. If you don't repent, here's the judgment, but here's grace and mercy and repentance offered for you. Like, did not Jonah get mad at God and did not wanna preach at Nineveh because he knew God to be full of kindness and compassion and full of mercy? He knew that he would not destroy Nineveh, but the prophet Jonah wanted Nineveh destroyed. So when Jonah goes, he doesn't even preach repentance, but Nineveh knew to repent and they repented. The Lord didn't destroy the city and he was mad at God for not destroying the city. But my point is, Like there's still always mercy and grace. And so I don't see Nathan coming like busting through the double doors like, boom, you did it, you're the man. As we like traditionally see Old Testament prophets, but like look at the love of God. So David's gotta be miserable at this point. And then you have God who missed his beloved. David means beloved. And this is God's personal beloved, the man that he sought and found who was after his own heart. David turns his back on the Lord for two transgressions, profound transgressions, but the Lord missed him so much that he didn't hand him over to destruction but sent him a prophet because he missed him. And this is the story of Israel. And this is the heartbreak of God through the prophets. It's not just judgment. It's like, I sent you prophets so that you would return back to me, but you ignored them. You killed them. But not so with David. He humbled himself. And he repented. 
And God was longing to restore the communion with David just as much as he was probably longing to restore that, but probably felt the shame and unable to restore that. And so I've kind of wonder if when David saw Nathan coming, that David's heart was filled with hope because he's like, the Lord is still trying to get word to me. And then David confesses, I sinned before the Lord. David declares, I have sinned against the Lord. And with a crushed heart, he cries out, and this is from Psalm chapter 51, he says, cleanse me, wash me, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And when David's brokenhearted confession broke through into heaven, Yahweh literally says in uh, 2 Samuel, I will take away your sin and you will not die. So right there, David has forgiveness and personal relationship with the Father restored. Presence of the Holy Spirit, like that divine life, even on the flesh is coming back and he's got to feel at home because that's what it's all about. And you read the Psalms and we're gonna look at Psalm 63, but just no matter what happened around him, he always wanted that one thing. I wanna dwell in your presence. I want to dwell in your presence. So right there, David had the forgiveness and personal relationship with the Father restored. However, because this thing that David was trying to keep in secret, it didn't play out in a national scale in a sense, but you know, people know things and they gossip, right? We don't have any of that here. Um, the Lord has cleansed us of that. But uh, because of this thing David was trying to keep secret, it played out in front of his leadership cabinet. So his generals and commanders in the armies, his high up leaders, the folks that had to get the message, even the enemies, like the population wasn't like these vast populations that we have in the wor world today. So people knew one another, even of, in enemy countries, they recognized one another and, and gossip flowed back and forth between boundaries. And so they even knew the story of what was going on. So this thing plays out in front of the army, in front of the commanders of the army, in front of David's leadership cabinet, in front of the enemy nations. And God said, for the sake of his name not being blasphemed, the human consequences of David's decision, even though he found personal forgiveness in the Lord, the sword would not depart from his house. And from this moment on, you see war and the sword not departing from David's house. That moment of peace that he had through the tabernacle of David was broken. until Solomon would come and reign, but even Solomon coming and reigning um, came through much conflict. But uh, the sword would not depart from his house. Once more, the second thing, the sword would arise from the midst of his own house, his own family. And then the child that was conceived in the sin because of the adultery, the child that was conceived in the sin will die. And to some of us, that might sound harsh, but the child will die. To protect the child from being born into that sea of iniquity so that the Lord can harvest that soul into heaven. So it's to protect the child. It's to protect the throne of Judah. So excuse my language, so a bastard's not sitting on the throne. And to protect Yahweh, the name of Yahweh. And 
I'm not making this up. If you read through 2 Samuel, these things the Lord declares to David because his name will not be blasphemed among the nations and the people that saw this play out. I can't let you get away with this. There has to be human consequences so that the nations can still know that I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts of men and I repay everyone according to their deeds. That's Jesus's words in his own epistles to the church. So after these things were declared by the Lord, David has personal forgiveness and there's human consequences bearing out because of his sin. After these things were declared, war breaks out and you see... um, In the midst of that warfare, one of David's own sons rapes one of David's daughters. I'm not gonna get into the details of that. The bigger story I wanna follow is the story of justice and the rebellion that ended up rising up because of that. After his son did that to his daughter, David was angry with his son, but because of David's sin, He was in kind of this weird predicament where he's compromised in a sense in the eyes of his military commanders and he was unable to hold his son accountable without being a hypocrite and having his own generals turn on him. So in the law, it says that that man should be stoned and put to death, capital punishment for crimes like that. David could not hold his own son accountable because of his own sin and his own generals knowing and all the political maneuvering that if he were to hold his son accountable, his generals would begin to turn on him on the basis of his own hypocrisy. Now, because David could not bring justice into his own house, what ended up happening is one of David's sons who was angered by the injustice took matters into his own hands. And it took a few years to play out, but in scripture it happens pretty quick. Um, His sister and his sister had been raped by his brother. And it's not like in our society where it's just a traumatic event that we need healing from. No doubt, I I don't wanna downplay anything like that because it's still a tragedy when it happens and there's still deep healing that has to happen when that happens. But in their culture, when you lose your virginity, there's really no realistic expectation to live a normal life again because you can't get plugged into society through marriage to have a man take care of you. So at that point, not only does she go through this traumatic event, but her life is over. So Absalom, the good brother, brings her into his home to live with him so that she would be taken care of. Two years later, his plan unfolds where he gets his brother who raped her off in another city and him and his buddies murder him and take justice into their own hands. After this, Absalom began to see injustice in every area of the kingdom of Israel, whether it was real or perceived because of his anger towards his father. He began to see injustice everywhere. And what ends up happening is Absalom, David's own son, 
ends up raising a military rebellion against his own father's perceived injustice and drove David out of Jerusalem as an old man and he sought to kill his own father and take the throne and then he began to take David's wives. David, being driven into the desert and the wilderness, fleeing for his life again, just as in the days of Saul when he was young. And this is interesting to me. When God says back through Nathan that the sword wouldn't depart from his house, you have the beginning of the book of Jeremiah when the very first prophetic word that Jeremiah releases over the nation of Israel is God saying, I miss you. And not just I miss you in a general sense, but I miss how it was at the beginning when you ran after me in the wilderness. So remember the beginning of David's life, running after God in the wilderness, whether it was tending sheep or I have found in my life the most trying times are usually the most intimate times with God. So running from Saul, running for his life, Man, what an intimate time. You see him putting on the linen ephod constantly during that time, and you know what that means. That means he's putting on his priestly garments to get into the presence of the Lord, to seek God and strengthen himself in the Lord. And so I think, you know, as tragic as the story is, and as much as we're seeing the consequences of sin, you can still see like the fingerprint of the love of the Lord in these things, of that Jeremiah chapter two spirit of, I miss the days of our youth when you ran after me in the wilderness. So I know it's gonna be difficult, but I'm gonna bring you back to the wilderness so you run after me again. So here you have David as an old man, back in the wilderness. And I feel like there's a restoration, an even deeper restoration of healing and wholeness coming into his own heart at this moment. When he's back there, just as when he was young, fleeing from his vengeful son, seeking to kill him. And this is where we find him in Psalm chapter 63. Hiding for his life, cut off from the earthly tabernacle of meeting that he set up at Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. And hiding in the rocks of the desert of South Judea when this song was upon his lips. So come with me to Psalm chapter 63 again. Verse one. Oh God, I love that first cry. We always read these things as like these just kind of formal addresses like, oh God, you are my God. But again, like it's just every time I see that, oh God, it's just this deep groan because he even says my heart, my soul, it, it yearns for you. My flesh is crying out for you. So it's this, oh God, it's just deep, emotional. It's touching his heart as he's beginning to sing this song. And I think the beauty of song is sometimes it's the only thing that we have, like music and tongues are such beautiful tools that the Lord has given us to perhaps create something or speak something that begins to match where our heart is soaring in the Lord. And so David is uh, not speaking in tongues here for our edification so that we can read these things several thousand years later, but he's putting it to song. And so it's that song that's causing that, that's helping that groan just be fueled is that, oh God, you are my God. 
And the beauty of this is like, you know, when it looks like Yahweh has forsaken him, his own son has turned against him, and he's doubling down like, no, I'm not gonna turn to the gods of the nations. I'm not gonna turn to Baal or Asher or Molech or Dagon. I'm not gonna turn to any of these pipsqueaks that don't have eyes and can't see or ears that can't hear that are just like the works of men's hands anyway. Yahweh, Yahweh is my God. And so like couched in its context, David running from his, for his life from his son, how much more beauty does this psalm provide when he cries out, oh God, you are my God. And then the rest of the song, song follows. Because this is not David showing up for his prayer room set of, you know, well, I've been meditating on this and I'm gonna sing through this today. He was being hunted like an animal by an army led by his son. And this is the song that comes out. Oh God, you're my God. And I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you and my flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land without water. Now there were men with David. So David wasn't alone and he kind of had his army and his captains with him too. So this wasn't just a clash between two men, but it was a clash between two armies led by these two men. And so David had his people with him hiding just like he did with Saul. And I wonder how many of them were like, there's no water out here. We're in the wilderness. We're in the desert. It's just rocks and sands and mountains and plateaus. There's nothing. There's no food. There's no water. And so in this dry and weary land where any other reasonable person would want food or water, and that would be reasonable to ask for. David ignores all that. He's like, even in the midst of this dry and weary land, I'm running for my life. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. And I love the language that he uses there because he's in the desert. It would be reasonable to thirst for water. And he probably did. But he's like, my soul thirsts for you. And that's nice poetic language. When he says that, my soul thirsts for you. But here's what's interesting. Comma, my flesh. My flesh yearns for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. So it could have been like, you know how we divide spirit, soul, and body because of Greek philosophy that shouldn't be in our pulpits, but we divide spirit, soul, and body when Jesus said we're one, we're made in his image, and the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is one. He heals us to be one. Satan divides those things. Satan keeps us divided in those arenas. But uh, interesting, what he could have done is, you know, with Greek philosophy and Plato agreed with that and been like, well, my soul thirsts for you, but my flesh actually really wants water. So the rest of the song go like, can my flesh have water? And then my soul longs for you. But he goes so far to say like, my flesh yearns for you. Like my flesh isn't even thinking about water or food right now. I just want God. Like how is that in these Old Testament scriptures when we live in a modern, or a modern understanding of a new covenant that thinks our flesh can't even say no to pornography or say no to whatever sin? We think that we're always gonna be sinful in our flesh. We, but here you have this guy living in Old Testament scriptures that can make that claim about his flesh. I wanna live in such a way like where my body is aligned, it is one and my flesh, my soul, my heart, my spirit yearns and cries out for God and lives in his presence as one before him. And I think David found that. Again, even new covenant realities 
that we should be walking in in the Old Testament scriptures. And I love verse two because verse one was his posture. Because verse one was his posture, thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary. Again, because that was his heart posture. He yearned and thirsted for God in his soul and his body. He wanted God. He wanted God, so he beheld God. He wanted God, he got God. And it's interesting, David knew, and especially because of his past, David knew that he could put on the linen ephod and in any place find God in his heavenly sanctuary. Because David knew where the temple was. In Psalm 27, when he's like, one thing I desire, this one thing I ask. By the way, he's surrounded by another army there too. And he's not saying, God, beat up that army for me. He's like, this one thing I desire. I wanna dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I wanna behold your beauty and meditate in your temple. The temple wasn't built yet. What temple? He knew how to put on the linen ephod, so to speak, to strengthen himself in the Lord and find that heavenly tabernacle. But it took the posture of verse one to find that. Behold God in a sanctuary. And in Psalm 27, four, you have the beauty of God. But part of that beauty of God, he's clarifying here, is that power and that glory. And he's strengthening himself in the beauty and the knowledge of God and the power of God and the glory of God to the point that he's not even interceding for his own life in a sense. We'll read the rest of the Psalm and it's like, yeah, I know you'll handle the justice issues for me. I just want my eyes on you. I just want you. So whether you give me the kingship back, whatever you do with that, you know, he was, King David was never attached to the kingship as we see other kings like get insecure and manipulate their way in or manipulate their way to, to keep the kingship or their position of leadership. David was never like that. He always understood this and he said something profound. He said, God made me king for the sake of the people, not for my own riches, honor, and glory, but for the sake of the people. So if there comes a time when the Lord no longer needs me to lead those people, I'm happy to remove myself because my portion is God anyway. I love this statement that verse three begins with, because your loving kindness is better than life. Again, couched in the context, what a statement. I mean, years before, he could have hardened his heart and rejected the Lord and turned to the gods of the nations like so many other kings did that even started off good. He could have done that. But he knew the loving kindness of the Lord And he knew whatever life that he could by his own strength live, even if he had some sort of honor and dignity and success by human terms. That it was all garbage, as Paul said in Philippians 3, compared to knowing him. And so this is the reason for this heart posture is his life was not his own anyway. He just wanted to be plugged into God's life. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. Just note that word live at the end of that line again. I will bless you as long as I live. Come back to verse 
Verse three, your love is better than life, so I give my life. David knew that the loving kindness of God was just better. It was just better. He was giving up his life because God's life was better anyway. So I will lift up my hands in your name. And I love the physicality of worship. A couple weeks ago, I had mentioned, you know, I love our contemplative atmosphere, how we have the ability to sit quiet, be long with the Lord, like go long hours with the Lord, whether it's in the prayer room or the service. But one of the things fresh in this season has been, you know, the Psalms are full of commands to worship the Lord in a celebratory fashion that actually involves you moving your body, and that's holy. Uh, Pastor Steve um, Thompson was here several years ago, and uh, they were uh, one of our friends from the Church of God in Christ. And, you know, they're known for moving their bodies when you worship, clap and holler, call and response. And so they came and led worship for us, and Pastor Steve spoke. And, you know, it's easy to look at that as a cultural thing of, you know, they like to shout to the Lord, and they like to dance and move their bodies, and that's not our culture. Well, I would beg to differ because the Psalms are full of commands regardless of your race, your gender, whatever, and you are called to step out in faith in many of these commands. And I remember Pastor Steve said something so profound when he's like, this isn't just our thing. This is not a cultural thing. This is my body responding to the holiness of God. And so here you see David, his body, he's putting movement in his body, responding to the holiness of God, responding to the presence of God. And he's like, I lift my hands in your name. And so when the Lord draws near, like your hands don't need to stay by your side. You don't need to sit contemplative all the time, but like let your body respond in the holiness of the Lord. The name of Jesus has often made the lame men leap. And sad people clap for joy and shout and dance. Verse five, my soul is satisfied with fatness and riches. Now, that's kind of a, a weird phrase, but if you understand the fat from the steaks, pretty much like fat from the meat that they would cut was a, a really good portion. They enjoyed eating that. I don't understand that. I cut all the fat off of my steaks. I'm just like, ew, gross. But there is a Jew in my house who still loves fat. <laughs> so when I cut the fat off my steaks, Allie's like looking at that on my plate. She's like, is that fat? <laughs> I'm like, it is all yours, babe. And I don't even try to get like all the meat off of it. I'm just like, just take it. It's so gross. I don't, just the text, like, ew. But, but you know, in Jewish culture, and I can attest still, like it's gotta be something in the, in the blood, but uh, <laughs> anyway, the, the fat was like the delicacy part. It was like the good part. It's like, you know, when uh, Jonathan took me out to his father's property uh, last year and shot a deer and brought it back, Allie and I butchered the deer on the table in our kitchen. It wasn't that bad. And uh, it, we saved 400 bucks and tastes pretty good. But uh, anyway, like the backstrap on a deer, like there's certain pieces where it's like, that's the good part. So for them, like the fat portions of the animal 
to them. Like, that's the good part. I don't know how they cooked it to where that was the good part. I don't understand it, but I just know, like, that was the good part. So David's saying, just after my flesh enjoys, like, the best of the best meal. Like, that's how I'm satisfied in your presence. My soul is satisfied with fatness and riches, and my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs, of joyful songs, of joyful songs, songs filled with joy, songs filled with joy. You know, when we first started the prayer room almost 10 years ago, um, I personally was just kind of tired of being all around the hype men and like just the hype culture where it's just the loud boom, boom, boom music all the time and the person's like, you know, almost in children's church fashion, like, all right, who's ready to praise the Lord? And it's just like this hype thing. And it's like, I can't hear you. And it just like, you know, they want to get the crowd stirred up and maybe there's some good intentions in that. But I'm just like, I was so over hype culture that when we began, it was just like this, just, just start in worship. Just start in worship. And, you know, that's become a beautiful aspect of our culture. But I've been feeling this rumbling for the last couple months of like the, the joyful songs. Like worship doesn't need to go anywhere, but the joyful songs, the move your body songs, like the playing, like even just unique rhythms that we're not used to, that'll make a body part start <laughs> responding <laughs> to the holiness of the Lord. Verse six, I, I love, I love this verse. And I love like not just the verse, but I love the reality because I get it. When he says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. I remember after I got saved, my dream life completely transformed. Um, I believe... Um, in freedom from any sexual addiction to the degree that you will have victory even in your dream life. King David said to the Lord, you have tested me in the night seasons and found nothing in me. I the night season, there's such a battle over the night seasons and we don't recognize the devil in that. Allie and I pray for our dream life every night before we go to bed. Pray protection and the revelation of Jesus every night before we go to bed. And I've walked with men to get freedom from sexual addictions or other types of addictions. And you know what Satan does? As soon as you start getting real victory during the day, your emotions are getting disconnected from it, your mind is getting renewed according to the word of God and you're falling in love with Jesus without fail. Every single time I've seen a person get to victory in that spot during the day, the enemy comes by night, gives them a dream that will come right up to their fantasies because then you wake up with this emotional like tension of I didn't fulfill the fantasy that I actually wanted. Um, I feel defiled by that dream, but my emotions are now pulled back into the fight where I want to do that thing again. I want to act out on that addiction again. And that's where I've seen so many men 
like fall and lose the battle because they won't win the battle in the dream life. But when I first got saved, I remember winning that battle and even getting past that to the point where my dream life is getting purified. And now instead of the enemy attacking me, like it's just, I close my eyes and go to sleep and I dream, I literally dream with God. And it's such a beautiful thing. Most of the time, like if I remember the dream, I'm dreaming with God, about God, like with him. I've seen Jesus so many times in my dreams. It's just incredible. But you don't get there on accident. You don't get there without realizing, even in your dream, like I'm in a dream, I'm gonna say no to that. Um, Or filling your mind where it says like day and night meditating on his word. Meditate on the word, like read it. And when you can't read it, have it in your soul. Constantly be pondering it, thinking of it and asking the Lord questions about it and just searching the depths of that as Holy Spirit is walking right next to you and all those things. Searching these things out. And so when your natural meditation begins to shift during the day where the Lord is the natural daydream of your heart, where you get to the place where just your mind's free and you're not thinking about anything and just like the warming love of the Lord comes into your soul, begins to provoke beautiful thoughts of the Lord in your mind or thanksgiving in your mind or just like that beautiful like contentment that settles in your heart. When you get to that spot, like your dream life just naturally becomes filled with heaven. And David, I feel like got to that place because of many statements he makes throughout the Psalms, but this is one of them. When I remembered you on the bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. One of my favorite things to do, I mentioned Allie and I pray for protection but there's, also, there's like that defensive, but then there's the offense too, because the best defense is a good offense. I love like having a Bible by my side, and the last thing I look at is usually Revelation 4 and 5 or Isaiah chapter 6 or a psalm or something, something that's gonna declare the beauty of the knowledge of God to me or where I get to see a place that God created without the hand of man, like his throne room, where everything in the throne room is the Lord's taste. He likes that stuff, and he put it there. No man put it there and begin to explore just in my mind the beauty of the throne room and fall asleep in that place. Mm. When I meditate on you in the night watches. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Verse seven, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. And I love this, you begin to see David's confidence. Again, remember the context of him running for his life from his rebellious son trying to murder him, hiding in the desert in a dry and weary land. And he's not praying, Lord, please protect me. He's like, he's done it in the past. I know he's a good protector. I know I'm in the shadow of his wings. So he's just rejoicing in that place. For you have been my help. He's remembering. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. And again, man's responsibility in verse eight, my soul clings to you, and then God's promise, your right hand upholds me. So man's responsibility, and then God's power to move on our behalf. Again, verse eight is just such a beautiful, beautiful verse that marries so much tension. Is it grace, or is it works? It's both. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Verse nine, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for foxes. 
So he knows the end of the wicked and he's confident. Verse 11, but the king will be glad in God and everyone who swears by him will boast. So I love this boasting here, it kind of harkens back to the songs of joy and singing joyfully in the shadow of his wings. Others saw the mercies of God upon David's life, but he also made sure that they would hear his songs of thanksgiving. And uh, this last line of the psalm just, it's kind of sad to me because uh, he says, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. The reason it's sad is because when Absalom was provoked initially, because of the injustice of David not being able to hold his son who raped his sister to account, that wasn't wrong. But what was wrong was the anger and the bitterness and the pride that he allowed to be fortified in that. And he never strengthened himself in the Lord like his father did. And he got to the place where Lying spirits were deceiving him and he saw injustice everywhere he looked and it was a lie. And so when David says, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed, he's talking about his own son that's lying about him. And after this psalm was sung, Absalom, David's son, was killed. And what began as a real injustice led him to his own death as he let bitterness consume his soul when his pride caused him to become blind. So Absalom is killed, the rebellion is ended, David returns to Jerusalem. And if David would have been killed, we never would have had this song. But because he returned to Jerusalem, the song arrangement was put into the liturgy of the tabernacle of David so that we can read it and be encouraged to seek God and to yearn for him. And in our encouragement, also realizing that you're not being run off your throne your wives stolen and your house stolen, being chased by your son who's leading an army to kill you. And if David can have this heart posture in that circumstance, you can in whatever circumstance you're in, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, you can be content in every circumstance. This is actually where that famous verse comes from. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Philippians chapter four, verse 11, Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having an abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me.
So put yourself in David's situation and objectively consider, what would you ask God for? Would you say, I want my job back. God, I want my honor and dignity back. I want my house back. I want my wife back. What would you ask for? But I invite you with just fresh eyes upon Psalm 63, in every situation that you find yourself in, that you find your family, this community, our city, state, our nation in, I think these three things we see in the heart posture of David was he trusted the justice of God. He wasn't fretting, but he trusted the justice of God. He rested in the grace of the personal restoration of fellowship that he had with the Father. And he sought God with a yearning heart to know him more. Amen and amen. Uh, worship team, you can come up. And uh, we're gonna spend a few moments in meditation and ministry if anyone has uh, anything during that time. But I'm just gonna pray. And then uh, we'll go into sharing at the family table before we leave tonight. Lord, I love you. My soul clings to you, and we know your right hand upholds us. Our soul yearns for you. Our flesh yearns and thirsts for you. Just ask you for just a fresh help to be hungry for you. We thank you for everything that you've given. So again, with thankful hearts, we ask you for more on the basis of your eternity, on the basis of your goodness and your kindness. We know that there's more. So Father, we don't just ask it for a roadshow. We just ask you for a deep purification, a deep just renewal of our own beings to be even more compatible with fellowship, with deeper fellowship with you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to search the depths of God, like Paul says, and reveal those things to the spiritual men and spiritual uh, women. We ask that you would make us those spiritual men and spiritual women to be able to receive, to understand, to feel all the, those treasures of heaven, the beauty of the knowledge of God. We want to know you. We want to know you because this is eternal life, that we would know you, the only true God. And so we say that you are our God and we seek you earnestly and we bless you. We love you so much. I ask that the word that was sown tonight would produce fruit. I pray over the night seasons of every individual here and those that are online with us. Just ask for protection from anything demonic, especially for those fighting for freedom. We thank you for revelations of the beauty of Jesus as we sleep tonight. We love you. Amen.